God, we pray for uh, you to help us to look at your word. Knowing what we're doing here is we want to hear from you. You've chosen this, what literally you and your word say is foolish, which is this preaching moment to bring transformation, to, to, to bring your voice. This is the medium you've chosen. And, and we are humbled by it, for we realize it looks ordinary, but you have said that you have decided to use it to be extraordinary. So God, would you please um, uh, 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 bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Help me to know uh, what it is uh, you wanna communicate today to us. And God, would you uh, open our hearts to, uh, to be open to what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, two words before we dive into today's passage. Uh, the first is that if you remember, who was here last week, raise your hand. Yeah, okay, like 60-ish percent of you. Um, if you remember here last week, it was a little noisy because there were kids running around. And when I was younger, a young man in my uh, 20s, um, I used to not like kids um, enough that my wife was worried that if we had kids, I wouldn't like my own kids. Um, so thankfully that is not the case. Um, but I remember actually being like really annoyed and distracted if there were kids like in worship or we had to have them in there. And, and uh, then at some point later on the line, before I had kids, even though I promise, um, it dawned on me that, you know, this whole thing of Jesus welcoming the little children was not a thing they just told you in Sunday school, but it was actually in a moment like this, children are coming and Jesus is welcoming the interruption and the distraction and the ruining of the seriousness of what we're trying to do here. And what I wanted to do is uh, see that our children remind us kind of our, of our mission and how like fleeting our lives are, right? Our mission is actually, so if you didn't know, the reason we are sitting on a hill, Brookline, is because we believe that there's like a calling to our neighborhood we have that's particular. And our mission to our neighborhood, I will argue, is gonna be fulfilled in part, not by us, the adults in this room, but by our children that are growing up in this neighborhood. And so if we care about the mission of God, and if we care about our children and what God is doing here, then if you've been here six months or more, and you're looking for God to speak to you about where you might be able to serve him, I can tell you that if you've been here six months or more, you can serve with our kids ministry. And if you're new, like six months or less, you can't. So you, I know you're not called to serve with kids, but if you've been here six months or more, maybe you are. And I think it's a matter of hospitality and mission. These kids need to know the Lord. And I think there's a temptation because uh, the hardest things to do are ones where we have no idea what actually happened and whether it was useful or fruitful. Right? But what I can tell you from my experience when I was in high school was that my mom forced me to play piano for worship songs for the kids. And I just groaned. Yeah, I just went, ugh, you know, ugh, right? And then I would go and minister to my peers and I'd play worship for them and I'd really enjoy it. And then when I grew up, I thought that who, the peers who I was trying to minister to, most of them don't go to church anymore, from what I can tell, most of them. Over here, the kids, I met one of those kids who came to me in Super 88 Food Court, okay, over in Brighton, and he said, hey, I remember you when I was a kid, and that was so meaningful to me. This inspired me to continue in faith, and now he's a leader at a local church here in Boston. And so, 
You don't know the impact of what you're doing, so sign up for co-kids. We need people. We can't actually do, and it's not so that we can be unbothered here. It's because it's so important. You have no idea what you're doing and how important what you're doing is and how important what you're missing and not doing is. So sign up for COA Kids. The next is this month of prayer, which we've just walked through, and um, it, it, was just done, it was just laid out before you. But one thing I want to talk about is prayer walking in the middle of all this. And we have this mixture of things you can do together because we believe that's important. And some of you need to do that because you're like, that makes you uncomfortable. You want but some of you, you're just, you're, you're just treading water. And I wanted to encourage you to in- incorporate some kind of prayer walk this month into your routine. Go for a prayer walk with others, maybe someone from your community group if you're, not, if you're in one. If you're not in one, you should get in one. Find one near you. F- find some regular time to walk around and pray for the people you see Pray for your, the, 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 that part of the neighborhood or that place of it. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your lab. Maybe it's your school. Find a time to walk around and pray that God's will would be done. Ask him to use you in it. Maybe it's when you walk your dog. What I am gonna do is stop listening to podcasts when I walk my dog and pray instead. A lot of you have dogs and can do that. A lot of you have these moments where instead of distracting yourself, you can seek the Lord in prayer. So when we say the month of prayer, we're saying we really, really want you to ask God to draw us close to himself. We want the Lord to use this month of prayer to help us see what he sees. And we want God to let us be a place of hospitality, a place where people are welcomed. And especially as there is a giant tidal wave of new people to the city coming this fall, probably for the first time, Uh, in this way in many, many years. We want to be a place of welcome. And never mind what we're going to do. Don't worry about that. That's why this is a month of prayer. You don't actually know what you need to do. What we need to do is come to God. We need to come to God regularly. We come to God often and say, God, draw me close. Draw us close. Help us see what you see and let us be a place of blessing and hospitality. Let me be a person of blessing and hospitality. So I'm going to put four prayers. You can just mumble to yourself at any point during the day. And we're gonna say them together. Ready? We'll just say these together now. Let's pray these together. Lord, draw me close. Lord, draw us close. Lord, help me see what you see here. Lord, help us to be a house of prayer and a house of welcome. Lord, send more workers for the harvest. Amen. We come to Genesis 47 through 50, and we've just found out as of last week, how God really brought Israel to Egypt. You now see uh, that for the, for the original readers of Genesis, the people of Israel, they're like, how did we get there and why are we here now? And so they are seeing the story of their forefathers, uh, the forefathers of Israel, who are really our spiritual forefathers. And we read Psalm 105 today precisely to remember that story. There was literally a song written about it. And what was that story? What has that story been about? So I'm going to take you through a quick flyby. First, there was a man named Abram, and he's called by the voice of a new God. There's this God that just comes to him and appears to him and says, I want you to travel far away in the middle, middle of tragedy. His father's just died. In the middle of childlessness, his wife cannot have children, or they cannot have children. Who knows the medical 
side of that. And a lot of times the woman gets the blame, but actually we now know that many times the man is to blame. There's childlessness and tragedy, and, and God says to Abram, I'll make you great. I know things are terrible, but actually I want you to go to this faraway place. I'll make you great, and I'll give you more children than the stars can count. And Abram is far from perfect, but in the midst of his sinfulness, his fear of others, the one thing that he does that God credits to him is that he believes God. He believes when God says something, that God will do it. And so Abram becomes Abraham, and his wife Sarai becomes Sarah, and now they're given new names, and they're given a new family, because a child Isaac is born to them when Sarah is 90 years old, right? So so now Isaac is born to Sarah, and then Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And, and that family's broken. There's favoritism. They don't get along. And Jacob, then, we see the younger brother. He's forced to run away from home because he tricks his father, who is now in his old age, had become blind. He tricks his brother, who now wants to kill him. And then after years in exile, years of being away, he also has his own family. But even that family also, not free of favoritism, not free of deception and broken relationships, And then Jacob has 12 sons. And we have now for weeks been looking at these brothers. 10 brothers especially who hate Joseph because Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, the uh, favored wife of Jacob. And, And Rachel has now died giving childbirth and there was a second son, Benjamin. So in the middle of all of this, what you see is that the promise of God is present. The promise of God to Abraham is present. God extends to Abraham and his descendants this relationship with him that they don't deserve. Jacob, you can see, you've seen it. He doesn't deserve it. He's a, he's a terrible guy. He's, he, he, he cheats and he lies and he deceives. But God shows him love and he shows them favor because of this promise. And so that favor continues because Joseph, they're really trying hard to not get favor, favorable conditions, right? Joseph is sent away to be a slave by his brothers And then they they tell Jacob, their father, oh, he's dead. Uh, Essentially, they they frame it so he's dead. And Joseph, all alone, he's refined for years in this lonely, horrible uh, period by serving. And as it turns out, he starts learning how to manage and how to rule, right? Wherever he goes. First, it's in Potiphar's house, the person, the house he lands in. And after that, he's thrown in jail. Then he's just kind of ruling the jail itself. And then finally, through the interpretation of dreams, he finds himself ruler of Egypt. And and a dream he had so long ago is fulfilled. And so, and then God makes it so that while he's supervising the grain distributions, there's this famine, if you remember. There's no food and people coming from all around. While he's like, like just one day, right? He's over all of it. Who comes while he's supervising the grain distribution are his brothers. And Joseph, showing the mercy and love of God, reveals himself to his brothers, and he invites them and his father Jacob and everybody from home to come to Egypt so they can be saved from the famine and not starve. Right? Seventy persons from the household of Abraham enter the land of Egypt. Seven, if you remember, is the uh, number for completion. So 70 persons. So the first point here is that God is faithful and God provides. God makes provision through evil done by others, and God makes sense 
of actions and situations that previously did not make sense. And I want to ask you this morning, how many of us need to know that that's something God can do? We've just seen four generations of a family going through things and just getting in their own way. They have a special relationship with God, but they keep getting in their own way. What could God possibly do here? But we see that God is faithful and God provides. God not only saves them, he uses their family to save a whole nation. That's something God can do. And God can do something in your life. But note now in Genesis 47, one through six. I'll start reading here. It's on your screen or you can turn to it in your Bible, Genesis 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father, my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, I want you to catch something here. God is using a hostile land to provide for his people, right? Egypt is a land where they're worshiping false gods. There's false gods all around. And the people who live there, they do things that are not pleasing to God. They live in ways that are not pleasing to God. But they get to live in this land and they even take care of Pharaoh's flocks. You got to understand, Pharaoh was understood as a god, chosen to lead the people. So literally, God brings them to a land that's like owned by another god. One might, and, and you know, they, they're asked, they even take care of his flocks. One might say that to take care of this man's flocks might be serving another god. Isn't that kind of getting involved with the world's affairs too much? But they do this. God uses a hostile land to provide for his people. And then they, in turn, bless the land. And as we'll see, when, when Jacob comes, uh, J- Jacob basically goes into Pharaoh, and when he comes into Pharaoh's presence, he blesses Pharaoh. And when he leaves, he blesses Pharaoh when he goes out. And so what does this mean for us? You see, this is the mark of God's people. One, that we're broken and we're messed up, we keep getting in our way. But two, is that we are God brings about blessing where we go. We are to be a blessing wherever we are. And doesn't that sound a little bit like being in our city? Now, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. Some people, some of you come from a place where Boston seems rather heathen and and serving false gods in a big way. And for some of you, you're like, you kidding me? I've never had this many Christians around in my life. This is awesome, right? So there's a lot of variance But it doesn't matter. We're called to be a blessing wherever we go. We're called to be, Jesus says, salt and light. What does light do? It illuminates. What does salt do? It preserves, right? I've I've realized now this is a big thing of uh, just all kinds of food preparation. If you're not really into food preparation, and I historically have not been, you know, you put salt in and it doesn't go bad. That's the whole point. It, It rots much slower. And so we're called to be salt and light. So we must be here. If you're wondering what you're doing here, 
If you're wondering why you live here and why you have the job you do, why you go to school here, I will tell you, I know from the word of God that you're here to help this city flourish while enjoying the best of it, right? They're in the land of Goshen, but you're here to help this city flourish and be a blessing to it, right? This place has the best of it. It has the best healthcare and education, all kinds of resources, but we are called to be a blessing, to help our city, to help our town, to help wherever you are flourish. That is our call. And now we zoom in on Jacob. He's at the end of his life now. He's at the end of this life, and he comes before Pharaoh, and we'll see what I just talked about. Verse seven, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He's like blessing a guy who thinks he's the deity. Isn't that, it's crazy. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And so Jacob, he started as a man who's stealing, blessing from his brother, looking out for himself, trying to get his own. He was a liar. His name literally means deceiver, by the way. But now he looks back, and his name is Israel now, but it uses interchangeably, just, you know. Um, and, and after all God has done, instead of bragging how great he is when Pharaoh asks, he just says, my days have been few and evil. And this is not a statement of self-deprecation or like kind of false, just like, you know, like in my culture growing up, if someone compliments you, you go, no, 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 no. I'm so terrible. Like that's how I was growing up. Like, like they give you a compliment, no, 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 I can't. That's not what he's doing. This is, one, this is a statement of humility. He sees his life squarely. My days have been few and evil. There's not much to it. So my question is, what's the humble view of your life? What's the humble view of our lives? I think there's a lot of like, I want my life to be awesome. And I want someone to ask me, what is so great about your life? And you, to have a story to tell. But what is the humble view? Why do you find that the saints throughout the ages, the holier they get, the closer to God they get, the less remarkable they seem to think their lives are? They see that their days are few and evil, but that God is gracious and good. And so we need to seek to be a blessing to others while we're here and just proclaim who God is. is our story is not that big. It's not that important. Our days, I think when we see them squarely, are few and evil. But that's not to be despaired about because God is good. It just means that we don't have to keep grasping for a different kind of life. So what happens to Egypt during the famine? Joseph basically acquires like the whole country on behalf of Pharaoh. Apparently people had their own property, but as the famine continues, and I'm not gonna read through all the verses, basically uh, Joseph has stored up all this grain so that they won't starve. So the people come and say, here's money. He goes, okay, they're all, then they're like, we're out of money, but we still need to eat. Joseph, don't let us die. He says, okay, why don't you give me your livestock, you know, all your, all your animals and, and, and stuff like that. And, and so, okay, well, okay, here we go. Here's the flocks and herds and, and donkeys and horses. And then finally they just say, we have nothing but our land and our bodies now. And so the entire country becomes pharaohs and they all give a fifth of everything they own from thence forward. And what that does is explain how Egypt kind of functioned throughout Israel's slavery. 
Does that make sense? Why can they build the pyramids? Well, I'm just guessing here. That's not in the Bible. But why can they like do all this? Like what, what environment did they come from? And it's like, well, this happened and now um, all of Egypt is under Pharaoh. Also two fifths or one fifth is a lot. Uh, and it kind of in contrast later when um, ancient Israel gets like, they give a 10th. It's like shows like, hey, God's not like oppressive like that. Um, maybe. Uh, but this basically just sets up, it kind of helps understand the backstory. You ever hear something about your family? You go, oh, that's why we have that, or that's why we do this. It helps understand why Egypt was the way it was when they left. And after 17 years, Jacob, now Israel, he approaches the end of his life, and we get to verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. I think he'd still call them few and evil. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph to him and said, if, I have now, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place, he answered. I will do as you've said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So what's Jacob doing here? Yes, he's making a request. But in a way, Jacob is reminding Joseph where the land of promise is and where they're from. And so he makes Joseph swear to bury him there. He wants, Jacob's like, I want that to be the place I rest in the end. And, you know, he's at the end of his life, and it's really interesting, you know. He's not grabbing anymore. He's not trying to deceive. He's not trying to get something done. He's just, he just wants to be buried in the land of his fathers. And Genesis 47, 31 says, uh, you know, he bowed himself upon the head of his bed, which I just read, Right? But the language is more vague than that, actually. And we see that Scripture helps us translate Scripture because Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And so when we keep our eyes on God, when we, as a famous preacher I heard the other day say, when we grow through it while we're going through it, we stop focusing on ourselves. We start focusing on how to bless others. And then we start to see both where we've come from and where we're going very clearly. We've come from few and evil days. And when we walk with Jesus, we know we're walking into a place that's so overflowing with blessings that we just have to share it with others. We can't wait to get there. And you're just like, I know that's where my body is heading. I just had a conversation with a friend the other day about this, that in some ways it's almost like you ever watch a cartoon and, or, or, or a show and they open the door and then the space inside is much larger, like it's kind of like arresting. You're like, oh, you go in and now I'm in a much bigger space than what it looked like from the outside. The resurrection is like that. That Jesus has come back through a door and you can, you can kind of see that there's a much larger space. You're not in there yet, but someone's come back through and has shown you that there's a much larger, more beautiful space behind the door and you just can't wait to get there. Just can't wait to get there. These are few and evil days compared to where I'm going. I can't, I gotta be a blessing to others while I'm here. And so now, 
through a final blessing, Jacob's family and the 12 tribes of Israel are formally established, right? Genesis 48. Joseph's sons are brought in to be blessed by Jacob. And let me stop. What is this act of blessing that's happening, right? So this is important because actually we do a blessing each week, if you didn't know that. Each week an elder gets up at the end of service, an elder of the church gets up here, and he blesses you, right? He doesn't just pray. He actually blesses you. He'll bless you in a way, and he might say, go in peace. It's not just a magic spell or something. It's a grace that's given from a place of authority to those who are receiving it. So let's see this blessing from Jacob in 48, verse 15. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So this is, in that, what I just read, Joseph's sons are kind of being officially like added back, right? So like Joseph's been away. It's like you are officially now part of my inheritance, part of this blessing. Jacob also does this thing. He's blind, but when the sons are brought, the older son is brought to his right hand. Here, I'll, I'll mirror it. The older son is brought to his right hand and the younger son is brought to his left. And then he does this like cross arm thing and why does he do that? He's continuing God's theme of looking after people who are usually overlooked. And I want to say that before I get into that a little more, that's kind of why we have some of the partnerships we do in our neighborhood and community. Um, the Lord loves us, uh, and he displays his heart often for those who are given smaller pieces of the pie, people who are on the edges, on the margins. Uh, God cares, and we should care too. And that's, for example, why we have a partnership with uh, Brookline Housing, uh, the Housing Authority. We actually have an official partnership with them that started a long time ago, and it's gone through ebbs and flows, right? Sometimes there's stuff to do. Sometimes we're not sure what we're doing, um, but actually what's really cool, and I'll tell you really briefly, is that actually because we've had that partnership these years, someone in housing who has, I think, worked for housing ran in, basically ran into Tanya, my wife, who has been doing some work uh, part-time with housing, and just said, hey, I want to get into church. And then she had been watching our messages. She lives closer to our Forest Hill sister church. And she just like started going. She's going to get baptized soon. She became a believer. Just like that. And all the time, I was like, I don't know. This partnership is hard. We never exactly know what's going on. We're never sure how many volunteers are showing up. We, we don't actually know what events are next. Sometimes they don't tell us. Things like that until it's too late. But someone is, has gotten to know the Lord because we decided, hey, this isn't the priority of God to just try and partner with people who are caring for the least of these in our neighborhood who just have a little bit less means that are our neighbors. And so, and you know what's funny about this though? So you do the crossing of arms. That's where the principle comes from. Joseph is displeased when Jacob crosses his arms and honors the younger brother. Because remember, Joseph's been living in a foreign land for his whole life now as an adult. He's kind of been in a culture that doesn't do that a culture that doesn't worship God, and Jacob is reminding Joseph before he goes of how it works in this family. Remember, you, Joseph, you're the 11th of 12, and you were given the honor by God to rule. This is how God works. God uses the scales of life to teach us about grace. You see, Joseph was under his brothers and then later placed over his brothers. Listen, this is why we gather, because we have to remind ourselves of how our family works. You ever do that? You go to a family reunion, got used to doing something a certain way at home, 
And then you get there, you go, oh, I forgot. Mom always does it this way. I gotta remember, that's how we do it. We gotta remind ourselves of how our family works and how we find our worth, how we respond to suffering, how we treat our enemies, how we forgive, and of how our God uses it all. That's why we get together. That's why it's worth it to just show up. That's why it's worth it to be here, if you can be. That's why it's worth it to just go to community group, even though you are just dragging it. I remember talking to a brother, and, and he was very, very busy, and he just said, it's a matter of, and, and he was much busier than me, so if he told me he was too busy for community group, I'd have been like, oh yeah, I totally get it, man. I don't work as much as you. And he just said, no, I, I do it, and I'm tired, but I do it because it's worth it. It's worth it to show up, and it's why we gather, because we have to remind ourselves of how our family works and how it works in this family. So Joseph's sons, they become officially uh, part of the tribes of Israel. And then there's this blessing over all the sons uh, that starts in chapter 49. So we're in chapter 49 now. And if you see, verse three, chapter 49. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it. And then almost like he's talking to somebody else, he went up to my couch. So Reuben, the eldest, he's removed from the place of blessing for sin, right? And if you remember, he uh, basically uh, slept with one of his father's concubines and, and really grasping for power maybe or something like that. Simeon and Levi, verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul uh, not into their counsel, come not into their counsel, O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. So Simeon and Levi, they're kind of brought down a little bit because they were ringleaders in violence and killing in anger. If you remember, the brothers destroyed a whole village to get some revenge for something done against their family. And then Judah, verse eight. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you've gotten up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Judah is given great honor, which I'll get to at the end. Note how the sons are blessed. They're all part of this blessing of Abraham, but they're being held accountable. And I wanna say for a moment, you gotta remember that in the same way, Christian, we're gonna be held accountable. We will stand together in the judgment, believer and unbeliever, and there will be a reckoning and accounting for all that we've done and how we spend our lives. And when we believe and depend on Jesus, in a sense, our standing is sure. You're not worried about whether you will enter the heavenly gates, whether you'll be with him. But it doesn't mean that you won't have to answer for how you've lived your life. If you're not a believer, let me ask you this morning, are you ready for that day? You know, there used to be this way of sharing your faith, um, which not everybody does anymore, it's not wrong, it just, it just doesn't always uh, start the tenor of the conversation. It'd be like, if you were to die and go to heaven right now, what would you tell the Lord about why he should let you in? So that was a question they used to ask you. Like, that's, that was the icebreaker. You know, you just meet a stranger. If you were gonna die today, you know, like they would do that. So we don't necessarily do that. It's not wrong though. And the question is right. 
Are you ready for the day? What will you say when everything in your heart is exposed? There's a book called Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, and it's the retelling of a it's the retelling of a Greek myth. But basically, there are, there's a woman that's at the end of her life, in which a life in which she has believed her whole life that she is the victim. In a way, she is the uglier and less fortunate sister of two sisters. And, and a sister whom she loves, but uh, you know, she's, she's always felt that she's ugly and less fortunate. She's the one who's miserable and without love. And in a vision near the end of her life, she gets to bring her accusations against God. So she goes into this divine council. There's like a council that's listening. And she has this paper. And it's, it's a list of her complaints about her life. It's her airtight case against God. And then she's shown in a moment with pure objectivity what her sins cost those that she loved. And then how she's shown how those she was closest to sacrificed themselves for her. And she's shown with, for the first time objectively what her life was really about and what was happening. Her complaints, she realizes, she's reading them over and over and suddenly she stops because she realizes their foolishness. And she finally sees God face to face. And I want to read for you just an excerpt from that. The voices spoke again, but not loud this time. They were awed and trembled. He is coming, they said. The God is coming into his house. The God comes to judge Oruol. If Psyche had not held me by the hand, that's her sister, I should have sunk down. She had brought me now to the very edge of the pool. The air was growing brighter and brighter about us. Excuse me. As if something had set on fire. Each breath I drew, let me into new terror. Let into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I loved my sister as I once uh, have thought it impossible to love. Would have died any death for her. And yet it was not, not now, she that really counted. Or if she counted, and oh gloriously she did. It was for another's sake. The earth and stars and sun. All that was or will be. Existed for his sake. And he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is, is coming. The pillars on the far side of the pool flushed with his approach, and I cast down my eyes. Will you be ready? Please be ready. Jacob here is ready. He's worshiping at the end of his life. He sees his days clearly. So in Genesis 50, Jacob, he sees it. And God fulfills what he promised to Jacob on that day when he dared to hope that God had brought his dead son back. Genesis 46, he's at the end of his life. Remember, remember when he's afraid to go back to Egypt? He doesn't believe his sons that Joseph is alive. Verse two, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Sometimes it's risky to trust God and walk in obedience, but we can trust God and his promises. We can trust God and his promises. We can choose to be ready for the day we're going to see him. 
I know I just read a, a fictional passage, but I think it speaks to a truth that we will behold. And so there's a funeral. The entire house goes back, all 70, the house, all the house, everybody goes back down to Canaan and they bury Jacob. And now we're in Genesis 50, 15 through 21. The brothers are filled with doubt as to whether forgiveness was truly extended. So they, they're, they're afraid. They, Joseph said they forgave him, forgave them, but they send this mediator with a message saying, oh, actually, dad said, please forgive your brothers for what they did. And they come and they fall on their faces after they've sent the person ahead. And Joseph weeps because he weeps because they don't believe who he said he was and that he forgave them and what God had done in his heart. And then he says what the entire book of Genesis has been trying to say and what it's saying to us. Verse 19, chapter 50. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Basically, you were up to something, but what I see now, far and away above these things you did, is that God was up to something far better through it. God's activity is not thwarted by the evil actions or evil people or our evil actions or the evil that we do. He's so powerful that he can accomplish his actions through them. And Joseph could see it. He had a, this clarity that he could see it. And like I said at the beginning of this message, God is faithful and God provides. God makes provision through the evil done by others. God makes sense of actions and situations at a time that make no sense. Again, how many of you, how many of us need to know that something God can do? It's something I've been preaching to myself. And God does this even though you and I don't deserve it. You see, we're sinful at the core. You and I, if we're put in the right situations, we are capable of the worst kinds of evil. And even though we are, at our core, part of this broken human race that have utterly mucked things up, and that deserves judgment and wrath, our God, he does it for us. He's faithful and he provides. And he uses the evil we're done to bring about glory. But how do we know that he's doing this? How do we know he's on our side? Because he did it for Judah. And so I close taking a moment to think about Judah. Judah was the one who suggested they sell Joseph for profit. Judah was the one who went to sleep out with a prostitute after his wife passed and ended up birthing a child through his daughter-in-law. But Judah gets blessed. And so remember, these sons are not great people. But what's the difference between Reuben and Judah, by the way? What's the difference? Because Judah we can see, was repentant. He went from being willing to sell his own brother to be willing to sacrifice himself for his brother. He was the ringleader of getting rid of his brother, get a nothinging his brother, but then he insists that Benjamin remain at the family even if it costs his own life. Judah is given rule and given authority, and he's given preeminence that originally would have been Reuben's. Why? Because one day God himself would be born in the tribe of Judah. And rather than see people perish from the earth and go away to eternal punishment, rather than see them go into a pit, into hell, he wanted them to be saved even if it cost him his own life. Judah is honored because it points to what a man from the tribe of Judah would do one day. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, he would die so we could live, and that's why we know he's on our side. And so like Judah was honored to rule, Jesus now rules and reigns and he deserves all glory and honor 
Because unlike Judah, who was unrighteous, Jesus was perfectly righteous. He did it all correctly. He did it without flaw. He was innocent, but he died for Judah's sin, and he died for yours and mine. And he wants others to know that this forgiveness is available. He wants you to know that that forgiveness is available because he paid for it. And he wants people to be ready for the last day. To be living in light of the last day. Building and preserving and being a blessing and forgiving. To be ready for the last day when all will be exposed and seen and known. And so he offers us this hope because while we're not going back to Canaan, One day, a place in this world, Jesus has gone to prepare us a place. And that place will one day come down from heaven and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So saints, let's know today that God is faithful, that God is up to something, that he wants us to be ready when he returns. God is faithful, God is up to something. And he wants us to be ready when he returns. Let's pray together. I'm gonna give you a moment to come before him. And and maybe right now, in something that came from the word of God, maybe something right now that came from the lives of these saints, you've seen a peak of the window into the eternal. You've seen something that casts a different shade of light on what you're going through, on what you're doing, and how you're living, and how you can be a blessing And maybe your reaction to the month of prayer or what it means to serve your neighbor or your brother or your sister. I want to urge you, bring that to the Lord in prayer. Bring it to him. Take a moment and come before him. We're going to spend time in response. There'll be time of communion. This is a time for you to come to him, commune with him, talk to him. Resolve to be repentant in a place where you need to be. Ask him for help. Remember again, it's not about doing this month, it's about praying. Come to him in prayer, resolve to bring some situation in prayer to him. If you're not a believer, I wanna ask, are you gonna be ready on that day? He offers himself to you. He offers to take everything you've done wrong, everything that is going wrong around you, and to bring something out of it unimaginable. Will you accept his lordship in your life? Will you accept him into your life? Will you let him be Lord so that he can take control? If you're not a believer, we'd ask that you refrain from communion, but there'll be stations around the room. Make this part of your response. We'll sing, we'll take communion. Let's respond to the Lord. Let's respond to what's in his word and let's seek him together. Take a moment here and I'll pray for us very soon. see things as you see them. 
God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, come and move. Help us to respond to what you want to do, to what you want to say.